0: Well, good morning and welcome uh, again to Christ the King. This is the first Sunday of Advent, as uh, uh, Peter reminded us this morning. And uh, for that, we're going to spend a few weeks in uh, the book of Luke, uh, looking at the the four uh, canticles of Christmas, the four songs of Christmas. And uh, if you've been around uh, church very long, you may have actually heard uh, a sermon series. Pastors love to do these. Uh, mainly because there's four of them, and there's four Sundays in Advent, so it fits just real nicely, and uh, we're going to do that uh, this year as well. Um, Theologian Michael Williams reminds us that the general trajectory, listen, the general trajectory of relationship between God and His people is from heaven to earth, rather than from earth to heaven. It is the flow of movement and energy, the direction of travel that we see in Scripture. The biblical hope is not one of man going to God. It is not the story of man's ascent, but rather it is the story of God coming to man in man's createdness, redeeming both man and the creation. I've read this quote every Christmas since I've been here in El Paso. And each year, I'm amazed by it even more. That God chose uh, to come down to His creation. And to save and redeem His creation rather than requiring us to scratch our way somehow uh, to Him. There's no other religion in all the world religions... Uh, Even in, sadly, parts of Christianity, there just is nothing like authentic, historic Christianity that tells us God coming to us rather than us going to Him. That He came first to rescue us. And in this way, we then can come to Him. No other religion uh, teaches that. The four canticles of Christmas that we'll be looking at this year are, first of all, the Magnificat, which we'll look at today. That's Mary's song in uh, Luke chapter 1. And uh, the next one is the Benedictus, which is the song of Zechariah, Blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel. The third one that we'll look at the third week of Advent is the Gloria. This is the angels coming and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Uh, and the last one is the Nunc Dimitus, which is the one sung by Simeon when he meets the little baby Jesus in the temple, and sings his beautiful song of departure. Now that I've seen my Savior, I can, uh, I can depart. So we'll look this morning at the Magnificat. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn in uh, Luke chapter one. We'll read verse uh, 46 through 55. And uh, we printed all the uh, verses through 56 in your bulletin, but uh, I'm only going to read these, uh, the, the first uh, few verses here uh, through verse 55. So now hear God's word. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. This is the Gospel of our Lord. In the Western tradition, the the word magnificat comes from the Latin word meaning to magnify or to uh, glorify. That's where we get... uh, Uh, the title of the song, the Magnificat. In the Eastern tradition, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it's called the Ode to the Theotokos, Theotokos being the Mother of God. Uh, In this passage that Mary uh, either sang or perhaps she chanted it, we really don't know exactly how it came out, but it is definitely poetic, and therefore it's a song of some kind sung to some sort of rhyme and rhythm. Uh, she quotes the Old Testament over 15 times. This was a young woman who knew her Bible. She understood her tradition. She understood the scriptures in a way that's pretty remarkable, pretty profound. Over 15 uh, quotes in the Old Testament. The uh, The actual occasion for her singing this song is that if you remember the story her cousin Elizabeth had been visited by the angel Gabriel previously we're not going to look at that uh, this morning maybe we'll look at it next week uh, but her cousin Elizabeth her husband Zechariah had been visited by the angel in the temple and told that Elizabeth a woman who was very old passed well past the days of bearing children would indeed have a child by Zechariah, her husband, who was also very old. Well, he didn't believe the angel. So the angel said, because you don't believe me, I'm going to strike you dumb so that you can't speak. So we can say with all confidence that Zechariah was a dummy. And, uh, yeah, pretty corny joke, right? He couldn't speak for the entire time of her pregnancy. Uh, of course, when the baby was born, it was John, John the Baptist, and uh, Zechariah was able to speak and pronounced his name as being uh, John. Mary, right after this story, has the visitation from the angel Gabriel again, and she's told, you're going to have a child. And so she goes and, and to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, and when she walks in the room... The baby, John, the little infant in her womb, leaped, the scripture says. He cavorted is what it actually means. In other words, he was celebrating uh, the arrival of the Lord in Mary, the virgin, who was carrying uh, by this time our Lord Jesus. So you see this very uh, almost unbelievable story, but beautiful It has lots of meaning, and we're going to look at a few things about this song that Mary then began to sing when Elizabeth greeted her uh, on that day. And we're going to look at three things. Very quickly, let me give you this outline. We're going to look at something about Mary, something about God, and something about Abraham and his offspring. Something about Mary, something about God, something about Abraham. And his offspring. So let's talk first of all about Mary. Something about Mary. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, he said this. Listen, this is from a previous verse, but you don't have to turn there. Just listen. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord be with you. Blessed are you among women. Among women. And the scripture says that she was greatly troubled and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel told her, Don't be afraid. And Mary found favor with God. So what happened is the angel appeared to Mary and he tells her, You're going to have a child. Now she was a virgin a young woman who had not been married although she was engaged to be married she was not yet married so she had not had uh, any relations with her husband and of course she becomes very alarmed uh, the greek word uh, greatly troubled it's just one word in greek but it means that she was distressed that she had a lack of understanding she couldn't figure out what uh, was going on. There was a certain degree of anxiety. This is all that what this word means. So she was somewhat fearful, filled with anxiety. Of course, you can imagine that kind of news. And so the angel tells her, do not fear. He reassures her. Uh, and I think our journey of faith, what I wanted to explain to you, is that our journey of faith often includes times where we are greatly troubled. Mary is no exception. She was greatly troubled, and we go through periods of time and we're greatly troubled. The church, in a whole, goes through times when it is greatly distressed and greatly troubled. And what you need to know is God does not necessarily change our circumstances so we become untroubled. But instead... He comes and abides with us. He tells us, do not fear. I will be with you. In Mary's case, the angel said that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you and you're going to have this very special Son. He will be the Messiah. He will be the Christ that will save His people uh, from their sins. God doesn't always change our circumstances. But He does come alongside and live with us in those circumstances. And if Christmas means anything, folks, apart from all the glitz and all the other stuff that goes along with it, and, and some, in some sense a certain amount of sentimentality which I think can rob us of the reality of what Christmas really is. Christmas is God coming down and getting into our circumstances with us as messy and as distressing as they may be. And they can be, they can be terribly distressing like they were for Mary. So our journey with God often includes this kind of thing where He doesn't change our circumstances but comes and lives with us. Secondly, it, it signals the, 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 the response that we must be obedient and live in faith. Obedience and faith. After all of the dialogue with Gabriel, Mary says this, Behold the bond slave or the slave of the Lord, I will do according to your word. Let it be done to me according to your word. So what, in addition to the distress of our life, we also have to walk in faith and obedience. If we don't do that, then we're just going to fail in in our faithfulness to God. And being able to hold on to the promises that he gives us when he says that he will come down. The second thing that uh, uh, this signals to us is the reversal of all things. Let me share something with you that I think you'll find interesting. In the Old Testament, there are uh, a series of women who are called barren. In other words, they could not have children. Sometimes they were old and couldn't have children. Sometimes they were just normal age, but they could not have children. There, was, there were six, five, four, five of these women, and a sixth one I'll tell you about in a moment, and then a seventh one. Five of these women could not bear children. And, they, and it happened at times in the history of Israel when the nation itself was barren. So God used the women's barrenness as a sign For the nation's barrenness, the barrenness of the world and its need for a deliverer. The first one is Sarah, the wife of Abraham. She was 90 years old and she was barren. And God comes to them at a time of distress, a time of calamity. When when the promises that He had made to Abraham were not coming to fruition. And promised them a child. The reversal of barrenness in the birth of Isaac. Rebecca the wife of Isaac same thing the birth uh, Rachel same thing she was also barren Manoah's wife we don't know her name but we know that she was married to Manoah and she was the father of Samson God came to her she was barren at a time when the nation of Israel was under great calamity great distress being oppressed by the Philistines and God comes in her barrenness and brings about the birth of Samson, who then delivers the nation of Israel. And finally, Hannah, who is the mother of Samuel. Again, a time of barrenness. Not only were they being oppressed by the Philistines, but the the Levitical priesthood had become corrupt, The house of Eli, the the high priest, was corrupt. They were taking bribes. They were uh, committing sexual immorality. They were doing all kinds of things that were uh, in opposition to God's law. And God comes to Hannah and gives her a son, Samuel, who then becomes the great prophet in the revival of Israel and, of course, leading up to uh, the the, uh, coronation of David as king. And if you will allow me to suggest that Elizabeth, the one I just told you about, Zechariah's wife, represents the sixth in this line of Old Testament women. All older, barren, cannot have children. It marks the reversal. In ancient Near East history, barrenness was seen as a curse. And it meant that something had to happen to reverse that. And often it was the birth of a savior or a judge or a king or a prophet. Someone would come along and would mark the reversing of the way things are. And that's exactly what we see with John the Baptist. He is born and he begins to announce the birth of the Messiah. But the seventh one in this series is Mary. And she's utterly unique. She is not barren. She is a young woman, a virgin, completely capable of having children. She's pure in her heart. She found favor with God. She was uh, uh, a believer in the God of Israel. She knew her Bible. In every way, she did not represent barrenness in any regard. In fact, the opposite is true. She represented fruitfulness. And the, and not just reversal, but an entirely new creation, new life, new birth, not just the reversal of old things, but the renewal of all things. The pattern of barrenness and reversal is overthrown, if you will. It is overthrown by Mary and the birth of Jesus Christ. He not only reverses everything, He recreates. He renews. The world, the creation, you and I, we are given new birth. We have an opportunity, not just to start again, but to completely be born anew, born again, new creation. And that's the pattern that I think we can see in Mary's song. A pattern of new creation. A pattern of worship. And joy. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord my God. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Those of you that know the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, should spot the, uh, uh, the similarities. It's very interesting that, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a Presbyterian. <laughs> and actually knew the Westminster Shorter Catechism. My soul magnifies the Lord my God. My spirit rejoices in my God. That's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. What is the chief end of man? Do any of you know? Yeah, my right, what you said. to glorify God and to enjoy him forever that is the answer to the question what is man's chief end to glorify God and enjoy him forever look at what she says my soul magnifies or glorifies God my spirit rejoices in God my Savior I'm enjoying him do you see what what it's it's remarkable that this woman is giving us a pattern of new creation of worship and joy you see the people in the Old Testament had a degree of joy but their joy was always stifled by the failure of their kings and their priests and their prophets and their leaders everyone seemed to fail and now we are hearing a song being sung announcing the glories of a new age a new creation a creation of worship and joy a creation that is filled with salvation the Lord has looked on me. This is what she said. When The word looked here is, in the context actually means that He has regarded her. His, his heart is, is out towards her. Not just her, but her as representing the new creation. That her son would usher in for all of us. This new life, new creation, new joy, new worship salvation. And salvation, folks, unfortunately, in the West, particularly in the evangelical world, whatever that is now, in the evangelical world, we think of salvation only in terms of being saved and going to heaven. Saved means saved and going to heaven. But if you read your Bible, that is not all that salvation has to do. Salvation has to do with every part of your life. In other words, if you're living and uh, in, 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 in your work environment is difficult and you have a very difficult boss and your co-workers are difficult and circumstances are terrible God says I will come and save you and salvation doesn't mean I'm just gonna get you another job I'm gonna change your circumstance no I will come and live with you in those difficult circumstances sometimes he does sometimes he changes those circumstances or you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I found a mass. And you have cancer. And it's this terrible cancer, something terrible. And God says, I will come and save you. Sometimes He heals us of those things, those cancers or diseases or other things. Maybe He will actually heal us. But maybe He won't. Maybe He will save us in a different way by coming and going with you through the horrors of some sickness or dread disease what if your marriage is on the rocks or struggling he will come and save you he will come and go through that difficulty with you maybe he'll save the marriage maybe he'll repair everything sometimes he doesn't and sometimes we suffer but we're never alone he promises to save us and so what Mary's song is saying is expand your horizon. Salvation is not just dying and going to heaven. Salvation is being able to look at your finances and say, God save me. And maybe what he'll do is not give you more money. Maybe what he'll do is give you a class on how to manage your money. Do you get the idea? He doesn't always change our circumstances. Sometimes He just comes and lives with us in our circumstances and helps us and saves us in those circumstances. And another part of the pattern of this new creation is true humility. You know, St. Augustine said, Of all the Christian virtues, humility was the highest. It was the highest. True humility. True humility. Lowliness. She says, when she sings her song, God has looked on my low, His humble servant and has regarded my lowly estate. He's looked on my lowliness. We know that we deserve nothing. True humility, folks, is knowing that you deserve nothing but you receive everything. True humility, is, as C.S. Lewis said, is not uh, thinking less of yourself but thinking about yourself less. In other words, it's regarding, it's having a posture in our heart, in our mind to the outside, rather than being focused always on the inside. Me, me, me. No, it's other-oriented. That's true humility, considering others better than ourselves. Instead of trying to push people down, or make people look bad around us so that we can feel good. We're always looking to lift people up. This is the mark of the new creation. Worship, joy, salvation, true humility and lowliness. And finally, Mary has an incredible, an amazing boldness with her humility. She has an amazing boldness. Look what she says. Behold. From now on, all generations will call me, talking of herself, blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is His name. You know, we're often confused if you were raised in the Roman Catholic tradition or even in the Eastern tradition. uh, Protestants can become very confused at how people in those traditions can venerate Mary. The early church, very early on, began to honor Mary in a special way. They called her blessed. They gave her the title, Theotokos, Mother of God. Now, let me be the first to say it It has gotten corrupted to where Mary has now, in both traditions, sadly, the Eastern and the Roman tradition, become what is called a, a, a co-mediator, a mediatrix, that somehow they've, their theology has gotten such that she has... Uh, 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 bears Christ's salvific work partly by herself. And uh, Protestantism, we respectfully disagree with that. On the other hand, no one should say that Mary is just any old ordinary woman. She has a very special blessed place given to her by God. And each Christmas, and in other times, appropriate honor... Can and should begin given uh, to Mary. What that is, we could talk about in other ways. But um, so that's something about Mary, this young woman who not only marked the reversal of barrenness, but rather ushered in ushered in a new a new creation. What about something about God? I'll do this very quickly because there's just too much. We could go for weeks with this. Two things, first of all, fear and mercy. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. What uh, Mary's talking about is fear with respect to uh, reverential awe and respect for God. A reverential awe and respect for God. It is what you could call a holy uh, terror. In other words, there's true fear, true apprehension. This idea that God is high and lifted up and exalted to the point that anyone in His presence must bow down before Him. That He does indeed have great anger and wrath against sin and injustice and unrighteousness. But on the other hand, He has tender mercy. See how Mary in her song pairs mercy with fear. Oswald Chambers, the devotional writer, said this, The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, listen, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. But when you don't fear God, you fear everything else. Healthy, reverential awe, fear of God will cause you to be bold as a lion. You won't have to fear anything. And why the scripture says over 325 times, do not fear. Do not fear anything except me. Put your fear, your reverential awe, your worship in me, your trust, if you will, in me, and you have nothing to fear. What can man do to you, the apostle Paul said. What can he do? If I die, things are better. And if I live, good for you. You see, it's good if we live, good if we die, we can't be hurt. He takes the extremes of life and death and he says, You believers in Christ, you have nothing to fear. It doesn't matter which way our political system goes. I mean, you may want it to go one way or another. That's up to your preference, however you may like it. But we don't have to fear. We don't have to live in fear. And that's something that her song makes very clear. And finally, the upside-down kingdom. He shows strength with His arm. Look at verses 51 through 53. I would like to spend more time, but we don't have it. He has shown strength with His arm, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate, filled the hungry with good things, sent the rich away. He's turning the whole world, the whole created order, the whole cosmos upside down. What do we value? We value the rich, the powerful, the beautiful, the influential, especially in the United States. I mean, my goodness. Look, you could ask people uh, any number of questions and they'll, they'll tell you, I don't know who George Washington was. I'm not really sure about Abraham Lincoln. I don't know about the Civil War. I don't know about the Revolutionary War. But I can tell you everything you need to know about Kardashian. And God has reversed that. We, we tend to think what we need, Christians especially, and I warned you this throughout the political season, we tend to think what we need is political power. And I've said to you, and I'll continue to say it from now on, political power is not the answer. might be nice, but the Scripture constantly is warning us against that. It's warning us against the high and the mighty and the strong and the proud in the way that we think. And saying that's the way to power, that's the way to strength. And Mary is singing a song exactly the opposite, inspired by the Holy Spirit, telling us the way to God's eternal kingdom is through weakness, is through service, is through sacrifice, is through suffering. That may be the way. Now, I'll be the first to admit that our church is not typical of many churches in the United States. The biggest churches in our country are churches that do not preach what I just said, but the opposite. And they're the biggest churches in our country. And folks, if that's what it takes to be a big church, then maybe we don't want to be a big church. Well... No, let's not let's 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 not go that far. No, of course. I mean, think about it, folks. The, the, the upside down kingdom scholars have written about this. The way of power, the way of strength in Christianity is the way of the cross. It's loving your enemies, not just loving those that love you back. Think of what that would do in our marriages. Think of what it would do in our our politics think if you actually could stand to have a democrat as your friend or somebody of a different race or religion what would happen to our world if we actually practiced what Mary sang about the upside downness of God's kingdom that's something about God he treasures People that are willing to sacrifice, willing to suffer for His kingdom's sake, willing to go, willing to, to if, if someone compels you to go a mile, go with them too. Somebody wants your coat, give them your cloak also. Somebody wants a dollar, give them a hundred. Whatever it is, you're all in. In other words, your trust is completely in God at the expense of everything else. She's saying about it, And finally, something about Abraham and his offspring. I'll end with this. It's the last few verses of her song here. He helped his servant in Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to Abraham and his offspring forever. You see, God actually is showing in this song the way that he will save, the way that he will extend mercy by fulfilling his covenant with abraham if you remember abraham was required by god to give his only son and abraham in genesis 22 actually does it in fact there's very little commentary very little we don't know how abraham felt about it and when i've heard heard sermons and the preacher goes on and on well he must have been terrified he must have been heartbroken they must have been cried he must have stayed up all night you know, we don't know anything about that. What we do know is that he got up early in the morning and obeyed God and took his son, his only son, up on the mountain, got the wood ready, got the fire ready, took the knife out, and was ready to plunge it into his child's uh, heart. And God stopped him and said, now I know that you trust me. I will exchange the life of your son for the life of a lamb. And instead of giving him a lamb, he gave him what? Do you all remember the story? There was a ram caught in the bush. Not a lamb. And do you know that rabbis for centuries have pondered the meaning of that? They, they have not... They, they can't figure out where is the lamb. And John the Baptist, the one in this story said this, Behold the Lamb of God, pointed to Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He takes your sin and my sin. He takes it away. He bears it for us, so that we don't have to bear it ourselves. And the promise to Abraham and to his descendants, us, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I hope you'll trust him, especially this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you uh, for this day. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy that endures uh, forever. Please help us, Father, as we trust you with our lives in this what can sometimes be a distressing world, an upside-down world. Give us the strength to live sacrificially, not to be afraid, but to love boldly, have mercy, Live in worship and joy and embrace the great salvation that has been granted to us in Jesus Christ, our King. We pray that You'll do that, Father, for us and in us through Jesus. Amen.